Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for a new year and the opportunity again to gather as your people as we study your word, especially the the difficult but um, encouraging letter of Hebrews. We pray that you would give us your wisdom and discernment to be able to read and understand, to make sense of this text and how it is um, teaching us and building us up in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, to introduce today, I want to ask what... Thinking about ancestries and lineage, are any of you kind of really interested in this, or as a hobby, George, Sue, a few of you, a few of you are, what can you learn by studying your lineage and history? What can be the benefit of knowing that kind of stuff? Some great history in it. Just the, just the great history. Maybe it's just uh, interesting in its own right. Yeah, Bruna? You can learn why some of the things that people in your family do are done. Okay. <laughs> you can learn why some of the things people do that's in your family true. are done. Yeah, yeah My that's grandfather true. was a bootlegger, and I'd like some of his recipes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find that out through Ancestry.com? Yeah, it's a bootlegger. Yeah. Other things you can learn from studying the family lineage and so forth? Well, sometimes the spelling has changed. Sometimes the spelling has changed, yeah. had a brother-in-law that passed away, and... He spelled his name different than his family. Sure, yeah. Came through Ellis Island, they simplified or whatever else. Yeah, Esther? Your health history. Health history, yeah. Doctors always want to know, you know, how, how have people done in the past. Yeah, sure. Other other things, other reasons? Yeah. You might solve a murder. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. The DNA. Okay, there you go. Good to know. Yeah, or you might end up, um, you know, by the movement of the Spirit, taking a call to a little town in northern Michigan. You guys know part of our story was finding out about Anne's lineage and history, her connection to this place, and just part of in the, the providence of God. So there's that story, right, that sense of story that you're part of, learning your history and lineage, and that nobody comes from no place. Yeah. <laughs> We're close, Cass and I. Sometimes it just has to come. Um, and uh, no one comes from no place, except perhaps one guy that we're going to read about today, a mysterious character by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And before we get into Hebrews, I want to kind of do the thing like The Chosen does. You guys who are fans of The Chosen, many times at the beginning, they'll start with some, you know, text or story from 2,000 years before. So let's whisk back and go to Genesis 14 to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be reading in Hebrews. Okay, so Genesis 14, and we're going to pick up with verse 17. Um, I would go back further and give you more context, but this story kind of comes out of the clear blue sky. That's part of, uh, I think, why the preacher of Hebrews finds it so intriguing and beneficial. But be that as it may, I'm going to pick up verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14. Now, after his return from the defeat of, oh, here we go. Uh, Hador Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abram, or Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, 
Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek comes onto the stage, blesses Abram, receives a tenth, and then, just so quickly, disappears. Only to be heard from in one other spot in the Old Testament, one very significant spot, which we'll get to probably next week. Uh, but it's so interesting. Who is this mysterious figure of Melchizedek? Historically, we know pretty much nothing about him beyond what we have in the scripture, in the text itself. And so we need to turn to Hebrews to see what does the preacher make of this? Why is he significant? What can he teach us about our Lord Jesus and his ministry? So keep your mind in that little, brief little snippet of Melchizedek's story and turn now to Hebrews chapter 7. Now the preacher has alluded uh, to Melchizedek a couple of times and now he's finally going to come after it in fall. He had kind of teased as he does in, throughout this, this sermon. He teased uh, back in verse chapter 5 verse 10 how Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The listeners, the hearers, the readers at that point are like, wait, what? After the order of Melchizedek? What's he talking about? He was going to circle back to that, and now he is. So let's pick this up. Let me read first just verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him... Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right. So here's the key point here and why the preacher is invoking Melchizedek as he has plumbed the Old Testament scriptures looking for anticipations and forerunners of the priestly and royal ministry of Jesus. He stumbles upon, or perhaps had in mind all along, Melchizedek, this, uh, this ancient figure of Melchizedek. Now, not to go too deep into the weeds, but um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, that great treasure trove of scrolls that were discovered, um, within those writings, which were discovered in the mid-20th century, but date back to around the time of our Lord. In some of those scrolls from other um, communities, especially the, the, the Qumran, the Essene community there, uh, we do learn that Malchiz this was a live topic. There, so the preacher isn't just making this up out of whole cloth. Around this time, there was discussion about Melchizedek, who he is, this mysterious figure, and his priestly order. Um, but apart from that, we don't know a whole lot about this guy or why the preacher suddenly turns to him. Well, it becomes clear in the course of this text why he turns to him. And here in these first few verses, there's two things in particular he wants to point out. Ways in which Melchizedek resembles Jesus or is a forerunner or foreshadowing of Jesus. So number two on your handout, Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus, first of all, because of his name. Because of his name. So there's uh, two ways that uh, the, the preacher takes his name. So I've, I've gone to the, uh, the privilege here of writing the Hebrew for you. So you can, yes, you're very welcome. But um, to do this, I'll just uh, put the English kind of transliteration under it. So Melki, um, say Melki. Okay, so Melek is the Hebrew word for king. And Melki means my king. 
Okay? So you have my king, Malki Tzedek. Say, Tzedek. Tzedek. Okay, so we kind of do that with a T S E D E Q. Tzedek means righteousness. Okay? So he is my king of righteousness. My king of righteousness. Now, interestingly, it's possible, one of the things that um, we can infer from this time and place, Zedek was also, the name Zedek was also the name of a, a Canaanite pagan god. Okay? Um, and so it's possible that Melchizedek is, the name means my king is Zedek, the Canaanite pagan god. Now, why is that significant or interesting? Uh, if For no other reason than the fact that there is this um, move afoot here in, in Hebrews and certainly in Acts to say, listen, you think that you are worshiping the true God, but you are not. Your Zedek is no God. And so there's this sense in which we are taking into, not saying that the, the pagan idol is anything, but that now uh, Christ risen from the dead, all of those shadows, even coming from pagan gods, ultimately find their substance in and point to Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis famously made a lot of this, uh, in particular in his essay called The Myth Became Fact. The Myth Became Fact, which I really encourage you to, you can find it online, it's a short, maybe five or six page essay. Um, Lewis was, he was a, a classical and a, a literature scholar. One of his stumbling blocks before he came to faith was the fact that he found within all sorts of myth mythology and other ancient literature these would-be gods, lowercase g, and characters who have bore some resemblance to Jesus. And that was a stumbling block for him for a while because he thought, no, Jesus is just another one of these. He's just another one of these guys come along. He's another corn god. That was one of them among the pagan gods. Tolkien actually is the one who pointed out to him, Jack as he called him, you've got this exactly opposite. See, what's significant is that this bears testimony to the truthfulness, the validity of Jesus who came in history, who rose from the dead in history. You don't need to forget about all of those other stories and characters, but recognize that they also are ultimately pointers to and foreshadowings of Christ Jesus, even as these Old Testament characters are foreshadowings and pointers to Jesus. Because if, if Christ is truly the Lord of all, the God of all, the light which enlightens everyone, John says, then we shouldn't be surprised, much less scandalized, by the fact that even within the pagan world, there are these characters who are, in a sense, shadows of the true God. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Now, it's an astounding thought, but Christ is Lord of all, and he is, in a, in a sense, the fulfillment or the substance of all of those other shadows. All right, but be that as it may, the, the preacher points to that name, just simply the, my king of righteousness, to say that that's Jesus. Right? And we could point to other texts, such as Jeremiah 23, talks about how um, the, the one who comes will be the Lord of righteousness, the righteous branch. So the idea that um, the coming king or Messiah would be the righteous one was very much in keeping with the biblical testimony and expe expectation for who the Messiah would be. The second name that he gives, or it's not so much the name as the title, is he's the king of Salem. Now, Salem is a shorthand name for what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem okay? Which means Yerushalayim, or Yerushalom, is the, the city of peace. He's the king of peace, figuratively speaking. Well, you think of Jesus as the, the king of peace, especially here coming off of Christmas. What else does that make you think of? 
Jesus as who? As the, not just the king of peace, but the prince, prince of peace, right? The prince of peace. Isaiah chapter 9 speaks it that way. So here, the preacher in Hebrews, as he looks back to this character of Melchizedek, he finds within his name a foreshadowing of who Jesus is. All right, let me pause there for, for questions or, or comments about that, the significance of the name. Yeah, Hans? Uh, prince, oh, the uh, Jerusalem, I, someone suggested that the city was named Siloam before. Yes. Just just peace. Just peace, yeah. And that it had evolved to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But I I don't know if there's any validity in that. Is this someone's commentator I read? Right, I'm not sure. But we have to remember that Jerusalem at this point, and going back into Genesis, is not yet, I mean, it's not the city of David, obviously. Right. David's the one who makes that change later. And so it doesn't have all those ties just yet to being Zion and the city of God. That will happen later. Other questions or thoughts about the, the name of Melchizedek? It's not real popular on the social security list of you know, top names. Uh, you know, Jacob, Tommy, Melchizedek, Susie. But maybe we can start a you know, comeback. Now this is the, the second one. So okay, with the name, all right, that's interesting. But now he's going to go one step further here and say Melchizedek is also a foreshadowing of Jesus because of his lineage, or more to the point, his lack of lineage. So verse 3, he's without, he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so that, here, I'm sorry, I'm just distracted by that. Is, can you check, is, it might be the, the TV in the nursery. That, well, I think yeah, over there. Oh, is it them in the in yeah. there? Okay, good. So long as I know where it's coming Can we from. Tell them to, sh- to shut it down in there. Shut up! Go in there and tell them. We've tried to figure out how to shut down the speaker. Once I unplug the wires, but that's uh, <laughs> nice. Being serenaded again. So long as I know where it's coming from, and I don't think it's one of your cell phones. That's just. Really good. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, Melchizedek, neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, did Melchizedek actually have no father or mother or genealogy? Probably not. (laughs) Um, But as the preacher reads it, he's like, well, it doesn't say anything about his uh, lineage, his genealogy, so he must not have one. Oh, interesting. Now, his point in connecting that to Jesus is not that Jesus also has no genealogy. Of course, the gospel writers take pains to lay it all out. And at the beginning of Matthew and in Luke also, you have Jesus' genealogy. And it's very significant as he comes in the line of David, right? So his point there is less about the genealogy than the fact that having no genealogy or father or mother, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God because he continues a priest forever. He seems to be, spiritually speaking, eternal, immortal. This is his big point then in connecting him to Jesus. He finds this character, Melchizedek, whose name seems to point forward to the Messiah, but also mysteriously comes on the stage. We don't know where he came from. We don't know when he died or if he died. And so in that way, he looks like Jesus. Now, there's a similar within um, ancient Jewish teaching, there's a similar kind of idea with both Moses and Elijah. They would be called the deathless ones because, again, Elijah famously gets swooped up in what? The whole thing was a setup, just to. to um, 
And then Moses, it, it tells us he died, but then it says God buried him. Nobody knows where he is exactly. And so in some tradition around the time of our Lord, um, it was thought that, well, maybe Moses didn't really die. And in fact, that's one strain of interpretation among the early church fathers, why it's Moses and Elijah who show up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Because these were reputed to be the two deathless ones. And so here, along with Jesus. But I'll let you take that for, for what it's worth. But, okay, there we go. Um, and so this, too, is another reason why Melchizedek points forward to Jesus. These two big reasons, his name and his lineage, or his lack thereof. The fact that he seems to be this kind of mysterious, immortal character. All right, questions or reflections so far? Yeah, Hans. Why did uh, Abram uh, do a 10% uh, tithe to him? Right. Uh, he is a priest most high, but is that, you know... Well, Abram had just become a member, and he was given his envelopes, and it said right on there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why does he already know that it's a tenth? Or uh, No, no, it's like, why did you do it to begin with? Well, this is where, this is why, where the preacher's going to go next. Yeah, man. Uh, I, to me, I do think there has been a... My knowledge was that it was a tenth of the spoils of the battle. Yes, yep, that's right. Exactly. So it's a tenth of the spoils of the battle, and so here he's given you know whatever he has accrued, having come back from that victory. Uh, you think of uh, that's tied to Jesus in in the Psalms, and then uh, Ephesians four. He is one who's led captivity captive and given gifts in his train. So it's kind of the boons that he is um, spreading abroad from those spoils. Yeah, Tom. Uh, of course, Psalm one ten verse four also says, uh, "You are a priest forever after the." That's exactly right, and that's our, that's our other text that we'll, we'll get to uh, presently. That's exactly right. Um, okay, so then let's, let's press on to verses 4 through 10, as um, now we know who Melchizedek is, and the preacher wants to bring him in connection with Abraham. Abraham. So he says, see how great, the word see there is, is literally the word contemplate. So the preacher really wants us to Spend some time with this. Look at this. Don't just see it, but really look at this. Ponder this. That's a better translation. Ponder how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, what's going on here? Well, number four on your handout, just to kind of give us a lay of the land here. The preacher is asserting the superiority of Jesus by contending for the superiority of Melchizedek, who is a forerunner of Jesus. Okay? So just big picture, this is where he's always going. He's always going to demonstrating the superiority of Jesus and how he is our great high priest. He's doing it by connecting him to Melchizedek. And now he's connecting Melchizedek to Abraham because Abraham's the guy everybody knows, right? Abraham is the dude. He's the OG, they might say, right? He's the original gangster. He is the original patriarch, the OP. He is the, and the, he, he invokes the fact that he's a patriarch, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And so he works, he argues from the familiar Abraham to the less familiar Melchizedek. Make sense? That's what he's, he's trying to do. So he's like, all right, you guys want to know how great Melchizedek is? I'm telling you, he's even better than Abraham. Cue the gasp from the audience. <gasps> what? How could that be? Well, remember back to that brief story from Genesis. And there's two things about that moment that now uh, the preacher wants to invoke. Two pieces of evidence to establish his claim. The blessing and the tithes. So, again, if you got your finger back in that Genesis 14, um, flip back there again real quick. So again, uh, verse 19 of Genesis 14, Melchizedek blessed Abram, or Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, blessing is a hugely important thing. Can you think of any other blessings that happen you know, stories about blessing in, in the book of Genesis where it's, it's significant to the narrative. Isaac blessing Jacob. Okay, so you've got Jacob and Isaac. Yep. Esau. And Esau, right? Um, you've got at, at the um, end, I mean, the whole last couple of chapters in Genesis is all about blessings. Blessing from the Old Testament perspective is what they call a kind of performative word. In other words, by saying the word, by uttering it, you are performing an action. A good um, modern analogy would be like when the, the pastor says at a wedding, I now declare you husband and wife, right? Through that utterance, it's a performative word. Okay? It's a word that does something. Even more so the case when it comes to these Old Testament blessings, it affects this blessing. It causes it about. And for that very reason... It needs to be, just as part of the, the normal course of things, the blessing needs to be uttered and spoken by one who has the authority, that is to say, a superior to an inferior. Now, there are a couple of instances where there's a, a blessing that seems to be given from an inferior to a superior. One of David's servants does this. There might be a couple other instances. But as uh, the preacher says, it's kind of axiomatic. It's just assumed to be true. It's beyond dispute, he says that the inferior is blessed by the superior. All right. All that said then, when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the inference then, the implication, is that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. That he's an even bigger deal if he's able to come over top of him and utter that blessing to him. Following me? Okay. So that's the first bit of evidence that he musters here on the superiority of, uh, of Melchizedek. And the second one is the tithes. So let's talk about tithing. Oh, it's always a, a fun topic to get after, right? <laughs> Speaking of which, we do have the new member luncheon next week. Don't give them out their envelopes then. The bestowal of the envelopes. <laughs> okay, so um, the, this, this is significant too because from the Old Testament perspective, Who's getting the tithes? Who's normally receiving the tithes? The Levitical priest. The priest, the Levitical priest. So um, keep your finger in Hebrews. Go to, um, what do we have? Numbers 18. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so Numbers 18, verse 21, the Lord says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear their sin and die. The Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and shall, they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. Okay, so the, the tithe is typically rendered to the Levites. The Levites who have no share in Israel, which is to say they, don't, they have no inheritance on their own, and so this is, this is what keeps them going. We talked about this in our, our study of the book of, of Leviticus, and how, in a sense, even still today, the way that the church provides for the remuneration for its, its pastors as um, an echo of this ancient practice, right? So why does this matter now? Why does the preacher bring this part up? How does this suggest the significance, if not the superiority, of Melchizedek with respect to Abraham? What, are you following his line of thought here? What's he trying to say? If Melchizedek is receiving tithes from Abraham, what does that tell us about Melchizedek? Well, or if not a Levite, he's... A priest, yes, yeah. So this is, this is, in fact, where the preacher's kind of going. What's interesting is that he isn't a Levite, but he is, evidently, a priest. The order of Melchizedek, receiving and accepting those tithes from Abraham. And the fact that he accepts the, the tithes, this is, this is the prerogative of the priest. So this is telling us not only that Melchizedek is, has that um, status of superiority to Abraham, but also and where he really wants to go with this, that he is a priest, that he has this priestly order. These are the two big pieces of evidence now that the, the um, preacher is mustering to demonstrate the superiority and the significance of Melchizedek, the blessing and the tithes. All right, questions or, or thoughts about this? To go back to Hebrews 7. Now. So did God appoint Melchizedek a priest? Okay, so... Dave's question is, who appointed Melchizedek to be a priest? You know, we don't know. This is part of the mystery, right? But presumably, certainly where the preacher would want to go is he would say, yeah, God himself must have uh, appointed him to be a priest because here he is. I mean, he's the, the king of Salem, the king of peace. He is the, the one under Z the Zedek, the king of righteousness. That would seem to be the, the suggestion there. Other, other questions or, or thoughts about this and Melchizedek and this comparison and contrast? Yeah? Jesus is the, in the order of Melchizedek right. uh, as a priest. He's certainly not a Levite. He's not a Levite. Well, and, and this is, and this is right. what his, uh, his, that parallel is going as well. Yeah. It's pointing to that. No, he's not of the line of Levite, but he is still a priest. Right. And perhaps this was a question that people had raised uh, at the time of the preacher. Folks wondering, well, how can Jesus be the great high priest when he's not even himself a Levite? How does that fit? It could be. Um, but he's going to make a, a deft theological and rhetorical move here in this next section to help further um, validate how this could be so. Yeah, yeah. Well, this reminds me of uh, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Mm, yes, very good. 
So in John 8, 58, this is one of Jesus' most inflammatory, seemingly blasphemous claims. Um, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Of course, invoking the, the holy name, the tetragrammaton, the, the name that shall not be uttered of, of Yahweh, the great I am. Um, but that more specifically gets to this. Before Abraham was, I am, in that order of, of Melchizedek. Yeah, that's a really nice connection. Good. Any other thoughts, reflections so far? Okay. Well, I want to press on before we kind of get some more of the, the payoff here. It's really not going to come till the end of the chapter, but we'll, we'll get closer to it. So let's go to verses 11 through 14 now. Now, the preacher says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, so he's, he's picking up on precisely this point that Hans had raised just a moment ago. But first of all, the key word there is in verse 11. And which word is that? Perfection. Perfection. He almost just kind of flicks it out there in passing. He's talked about it before with respect to Jesus. He's going to talk about it some more with respect to the people of God. But he just kind of flicks it out there in passing that if perfection had been attainable through the priesthood, the implication being this is God's goal for his people. It's nothing less than their perfection. That's the heart of the Father for his people. And perfection, maybe you hear perfection, and that sounds too just kind of moralistic or something like that. Like, uh, just kind of moralistic, holier-than-thou kind of perfection. That's not the idea. The, the Greek and behind that, the Hebrew words are connected, no doubt, with the, with the, the word group of shalom, which has this sense of wholeness and flourishing or as one author puts it, shalom is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. So when you think in those terms of perfection, of wholeness, what sort of, thing, what, what sort of images or ideas does that conjure up in your mind? When you think about what it might look like to have true perfection, true wholeness, true shalom as God designed it, what, are, what, what do you think would be some of the, the factors, some of the pieces of that perfection? No death. No death. Eternal spring. Eternal spring. Or fall. Eternal spring. But, oh, okay, spring. Yes. Yeah. Like Eden, going back to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the evening. Yeah, like Eden, having that, that close communion and relationship with God in, in the garden. Yeah, what else? No guilt. No guilt. That burden of guilt is lifted. Yes. Complete salvation. Complete and utter salvation. And next week we're going to see a beautiful verse and, and phrase that the author uses to describe that. Yeah. No war. No war, right? Swords into plowshares. The lion with the lamb, right? The peaceable kingdom vision of, of Isaiah. The kid who can put his hand over the snake, the snake's hole, and not even worry about it. Yeah. Other things that, that strike your imagination about that kind of state of shalom. Yeah. Completion. Completion. Yeah, that's a, and that's a good word in connection with it. 
You think about our bodies, right? Like, how many of you are just dealing with aches and pains <laughs> that will not go away? It's easier. Um, what's that? Easier to ask the ones that don't. It's easier to ask the ones that don't, right. <laughs> but we need to, to recognize, sometimes we get the sense that God's purpose for us is just to slough off this body. Oh, what a, what a pain it is. I'll be so glad when I'm just freed from this body, this shell, as folks will sometimes say. That's not the way we ought to think. God created your body and said, it is what? Good. good. It is good. Jesus, the Son of God, assumed not a, a ghostly shell, but a body. And when he rose from the dead, he rose as a body. And indeed, now, at the right hand of God Most High is the incarnate Son of God. And so he did not, like a, a snake, leave behind his body when he went up and ascended to the Father's right hand. But he is still the incarnate Son of God in ways that we cannot possibly understand. He is there, filling all things, sharing our flesh. St. Athanasius famously said, God became man so that man may become God. I didn't mean that in a blasphemous way, but that we might say it more like it says in 2 Peter, to share that divine nature. We're becoming more and more like him until finally being conformed to his likeness in our resurrection. You heard it in Romans 6. We, if we have shared a death like his, we shall certainly, certainly share a resurrection like his. And so when we talk about that state of shalom, part of that is very much the renewal, the resurrection of your body. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more struggle. But joy. We're the only creatures that God created that can smell, see, touch, taste everything in this world that God created. And that's what he wanted. He wanted somebody that would appreciate this creation. Sure. And isn't it part of the, the tragedy of life in this and age is God. that we're, we're the ones then who more acutely understand it, right, than any, and any of his other creatures. My dog, Theo, he just seems to be going blissfully on as though we were still in Eden. You know, as long as he gets a walk in his food, he's like, this is good. I mean, resurrection, yeah, that'd be fine, but I, I seem to be happy now. Um, but as human creatures, we recognize how far things have fallen. Yeah. But we also should appreciate how we can enjoy that creation. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. yes. And, that, and so instead I guess... Instead of thinking how terrible it and start, is. Instead of thinking how terrible everything is. That's exactly right to delight in, in God's world now that even now we get these glimpses of shalom, right? We ought to be shalom hunters, <laughs> keeping our, our eyes open. I'm uh, reading this book right now. It's talking about kind of the, um, it's, it's going to sound geekier than, well, maybe it won't sound geekier than it is. Maybe it just is, and I need to accept it. But about the kind of the, the neuroscience of attention and how much the things that you pay attention to, what you do, give your attention to, that's, that's the, how you start to sense your circumstances, right? If you're constantly attending to awful things, sad things, sorrowful things, you know, difficult things, um, that's going to start to be your, your mindset. But that to uh, attend to the goodness of God's world, to sources of joy, it starts to actually change the, your neurocircuitry, mm -hmm. wiring. I'm obviously talking way above my pay grade at this point. Where does uh, Paul say that? Or somebody says that. 
Well, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is lovely, think about these things. Attend to these things. In fact, I, I could be mistaken, but I think he might use the same word there that, that uh, the preacher uses here to talk about consider, ponder these things. Right? So, all that to say, this is the Father's purpose for us. Jesus says it. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can hear that as a command, but you can also, and even more so, should hear that as a promise. You shall be perfect. You shall be whole. And him who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, perfection, on, up until the day of our Lord Jesus. All right, so he just kind of casts it out there. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, it was not. It was not. It was a stopgap. It was a band-aid until, finally, another priest could come, one after the order of Melchizedek. And so ultimately what the preacher's saying is the Levitical priesthood was only and ever a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. Okay. Everything we read about in, in Leviticus is so important because we see through that how it's pointing forward to Jesus, to his ministry. And that hits the point then in his previous paragraph, and it's almost too subtle, but it's real. Yeah. The real priest was preceding the Levitical priesthood. Yes, that's exactly right. Because the Levitical priesthood tied to him. Yep. So they knew, in a sense, even though it's in the loins of Abraham, yeah. he's the real deal. Yes. So we are not the real deal, right. but we will do the part we're given. Yep, that's exactly right. So he's the real deal. And it's almost, he. yeah, uh, the preacher just kind of cast this off. Uh, one might even say that Levi himself was in, it was in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the, the uh, token preacherly joke, right? Uh, but um, that's, that's kind of, it, it's making a serious point that that's right. He predated even. So that the, the priesthood, there's different kinds of typology. Um, John Kleinig, in his commentary, talks about this. There's different kinds of typology in the, the Bible. Some of it is what he calls horizontal. That is, there's the type in history that points forward to the antitype or the fulfillment in the future. And then there's the other kind that he calls vertical typology, where it's, no, the earthly is reflecting or is a type of the heavenly. And this is the case with the tabernacle, where the tabernacle is, is meant to be, well, it fulfills both roles. But first of all, it's an image of this heavenly tabernacle, and he'll talk more about that in Hebrews. But then, of course, it points forward to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So also with this priesthood, that the, the Levitical priesthood was a, a shadow and a reflection of the heavenly one. Now, if we really wanted to geek out, um, some commentators will point to and connect this with um, Plato's famous allegory of the cave mm. and the idea that, that the cave, that there are the, the true forms and that the, the philosopher is the one who is able to perceive the forms which are in heaven that now we live in this kind of um, shadow world. And is the preacher familiar with Plato? Is he playing on that? Play-Doh. <laughs> um, perhaps. I mean, almost certainly. This is, he's centuries after Plato. He's probably familiar with it. But again, back to our point we were making earlier, even Plato himself is now being, and his teaching, he was grasping, he was seeing, as Paul says, as in a mirror dimly. right? But now the fulfillment has come in, in Christ. Now the, these are the, Jesus is the, the true form. Okay. 
Good. And so now the law, he goes on to say in verse 12, when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. So he's following from this because the law, and especially the ceremonial law, depends on the priesthood. He's saying if there's a change in the priesthood, then there must be a change in the law, because now the law is going to be fulfilled <coughs> in Jesus. We're getting out ahead of ourselves a little bit. But this is the direction that he's going to. And um, just to, to touch briefly on this then, that question about he's not from the tribe of Levi, no, he's from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah, it talks about in, in Revelation. And so from that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. That's part of the significance, saying, no, he's not just another Levitical priest following the sons of Aaron. Instead, he's this other thing. All right, that's as far as I want to go today in Hebrews. Questions or reflections, other thoughts before we kind of conclude wrap up today? Well, when you read priesthood, at first I thought one priest dying and the next one takes place. But this isn't about a change in priests. This is a change in the whole line of priests. Yeah. So the Levitical priesthood is a priesthood, and then there's this priesthood mm -hmm. that's radically different. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. And, and when this be... one comes, then the law that ran this one yes. does not apply. Does not apply, that's right. Yeah, Bill, and then Carla. This particular chapter that uh, reminds me, it's, it's as if Paul is arguing a case in front of the Supreme Court because he goes through very discreet, yes. small steps to convince the Jewish hierarchy that there is a new way of looking at this law, if right. you will. Right. Uh, and I don't know who the listeners are. It's not nine people in a bench. Right, yeah. But it's as if he's arguing as much as you believe that was true, yeah. you need to look at it a different way based on recent yes. events. That's exactly right. So, you know, Bill's drawing our attention to just the, the shape of the rhetoric here very much has this sense of it being a, a deliberative rhetoric that the, the preacher is seeking to persuade his hearers to the truthfulness of his message. We, there's a lot that we wish we knew about the, the audience with, that we don't know, but they were surely Jewish Christians but who were in some way. He's yeah. doing it in a very minute He's way. doing it in a very minute, detailed way. Excruciatingly detailed, step by step by step. And at this point, it's where I want to remind you that this was almost surely originally a sermon, and why you should be thankful then when your preacher doesn't go for <laughs> three hours. Like, all right, point two, sub point A, sub point C, sub point D, you know. But yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, he's very much going deep into it. Carla, you had thought. Well, in verse 14, it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Well, Judah was the one who committed issues with Tamar, right? Yes. I, you know, and you can't come from much more negative yeah, ancestry. That's exactly right. So um, Judah did not have... Suffice it to say, Judah didn't have the best reputation in the Old Testament. But he also, going back to the connection of the blessings... You know, that, there was that blessing, that promise. Um, and, uh, so look real quick to Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 49. So we alluded to this um, before, the, uh, the blessings of Jacob for his sons. So in Genesis 49... Here you have this performative blessing, this word that does something. Um, 
So uh, verse 8 is when it starts. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Then this is the key verse, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this blessing uh, was taken up in, within the history of God's people as an important promise and prophecy that one day the Messiah would come from the line of, of Judah. And that Judah, for all of his, his faults and his misdeeds, is in the end going to be redeemed by one of his descendants. And this really gets to um, going to our conclusion now, just a, a couple of parting thoughts. Number nine, don't sleep on the seemingly minor characters in the Bible. <laughs> like Judah, like Tamar, like Rahab, even like Jonah. He's got a book written after him, but he wouldn't have been thought of as that big of a deal until we see that Jesus is the new and greater Jonah. Uh, it's just fascinating. Melchizedek, I, I guess, would be the parade example of this. Someone who's just barely shows up at all in, in the scriptures, but this just underscores the point that none of it is wasted. None of it is meaningless. Every last jot and tittle of the scripture is pointing toward this deeper depth and, uh, and, and symbolism and fulfillment finally in Jesus. I think it's a beautiful thing. But here's the last thought I want to leave you with um, from this passage today, number 10. That God is going to go to every length in order to make you a person of wholeness, perfection, shalom. And I love this benediction, this blessing from 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God of peace, may the God of shalom himself sanctify you what? Holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely what? Do it. Do it. Amen. All right. Good to be back with you guys. We'll continue through Hebrews chapter 7 next week.